0: Hello, hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. This week we're taking on the biggest news story in the country. The gates have been opened across the ditch and the New Zealand-Australian travel bubble, an idea first floated in April of last year, is finally upon us. And with Australian tourists comprising 40% of the Kiwi's annual tourism intake, the goodwill gesture serves as a much-needed jab in the arm for cross-Tasman tourism industries. But for a program that has seen Prime Ministers trade barbs over COVID-19 management, the announcement today is tentative. New Zealanders have been allowed into Australia without needing to quarantine since October of last year. But now that same offer is being extended to Australians in New Zealand, barring, of course, another outbreak of community transmission. Joining me today to help burst the bubble is Senior Lecturer in the Management Discipline Group at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School, Chair of the Council of Australasian Tourism and Hospitality Educators, and a member of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades Consulate Consultative Group, Dr David Bierman. So, Doctor, to start off, it's been a while since we first heard rumblings of a bubble in April of last year, straight out of the Easter long weekend, and into a very big announcement.
1: Well, effectively, from the 19th of April, uh, Australians will be able to travel to New Zealand quarantine-free, subject to a number of a number of conditions. Everything in New Zealand is very condition- conditional. But, but basically, what's happened is that that earlier this month, um, or sort of, actually sorry, late March, the Australian government firstly uh, suspended the ban on international travel. In, in relation to New Zealand, and, and so far only to New Zealand. So that that was the first step, and that already happened. Today, um, uh, Jacinda Ardern announced that the, the travel bubble will actually be operating from midnight on the 18th, which is really basically the 19th of, uh, of April, which is great, and that Australians will be able to travel... Pretty much anywhere in New Zealand, there will be an expectation that they have uh, had a test a little bit, little time before they've gone. So there are, you know, a few strings attached to it. But um, you know, from the travel industry's point of view, this is a very big breakthrough for, for both Australia and New Zealand. For, for New Zealand in particular, it's going to be very important because of the fact that. Uh, Australia represents 40% of, of New Zealand's inbound tourism under a nor, in a normal year. So our 1.5 million Australian tourists inject around about $2.7 billion into the New Zealand economy. And uh, we're, we're a very big part of their tourism industry. Uh, uh, conversely, New Zealand's a, a very important market for Australia, and I guess also, too, with the absence of a Chinese market coming back to the way it was Pre coronavirus, um, you know, New Zealand will, will will certainly be the dominant international market for for a while. I mean, pre COVID, it represented around about one sixth of all international visitors to Australia. So it's all, it's always been an important market here, and Kiwis tend to stay a long time. So uh, so to actually have a beginning of a sense of normality returning is good. I I guess one thing with with New Zealand in particular is and they have a lot in common with Queensland and Western Australia is they're very titchy about um about travel and about any any outbreaks of covid and they they tend to to get a little bit panicky as soon as you get one or two cases. Mm. So I I I'm not I don't just assume that this is going to be a a a huge recovery that we can sit back and relax and say, Isn't that wonderful? I think we're gonna be we should be we should probably approach it with cautious optimism. <laughs>
0: Mm. And you've been quite intimately involved, or at least involved in some degree for quite a while with the actual process of of opening up the travel bubble with New Zealand and, and obviously sort of uh, banging out those uh, parameters of what this would actually entail. And obviously there's been a huge amount of talk about this since about April of last year when, yes, the, when the idea was first floated. Um, yep. And since then, as you've already mentioned, there does seem to be sort of that same twitchiness that we see in, in Queensland with uh, Premier Palajay and then yes. McGowan over in, uh, in Western Australia.
1: Worked, it worked a treat for him. I mean, he, he, uh, he had the biggest landslide in Western Australian political history. So.
0: Mm. Uh, but uh, just, just for the audience, can you give us a, a brief understanding of, of how you've been involved and what you have seen over the last few months and watching this process sort of, in a way, behind the scenes um, come to fruition?
1: Yeah. Well, I've I've... I've I've worked a, a fair bit with Tourism Australia. Um, one of my former students actually is, is now in charge of risk and crisis and recovery at Tourism Australia. And when she took on that particular post, uh, it was just towards the end of the bushfires, and then of course she had to cope with uh, coronavirus, and and I, and. And From time to time, she asked me a couple of questions because of the fact that I've been teaching in the area of tourism risk crisis and recovery for, for quite a while here. Um, I have that sort of involvement, but also, too, on a, a much longer-term basis, um, I've been a member of what they call the Consular Consultative Group, which is a stakeholder group that advises the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade about... Um, about Travel advisories and also tourism safety and security. Um, that those stakeholders, the majority of them are, are tourism organisations or tourism associations. So uh, we have, you know, as part of that, the Australian Federation of Travel Agents, the major airlines, cruise lines, International uh, Council of Australian Tour Operators, Insurance Council of Australia, quite a lot of organisations who have a vested interest in in um, Tourism safety and security, and particularly, you know, accurate travel advisories. So in that area, um, DFAT obviously briefs that organisation because we have an interest uh, in in uh, in where travel advisories are going. And of course, when COVID arose, we went from having. Uh, very nuanced advisories, travel advisories about every country in the world. To by the end of March last year, basically DFAT saying you can't travel anywhere, and that's that's one of the first times in 18 years we've had something of a disagreement between the tourism stakeholders, in particular, and, and DFAT. Um, I, th- I think that DFAT, even by global standards, uh, the complete ban of travel was extreme. Um, I'm happy to see that they've uh, that they've changed their their tune as far as New Zealand is concerned, and I'm hoping that they're uh, in the in the future they'll become a bit nuanced more nuanced about a lot of other countries i look I totally understand uh that we that part of the success of Australia in managing coronavirus has been the fact that we've actually kept uh travelers out and probably prevented a lot of a lot of Australians who love to travel internationally from doing so. Uh, it's it's been in a sense the story of a success. It's been, of course, pretty catastrophic for the travel industry in the meantime. But it's been a it's been an interesting involvement, and you know I've been researching in this area for uh, about 20 years. So that's that's my story. <laughs> as it relates to this issue.
0: And as you have been sort of observing how this, uh, this eventual plan has been worked out, and as you've already said, it is still quite a tentative agreement and, uh, and subject yeah. to, to anything, really. Um, but from your perspective, what was the main motivation here? Because obviously, I think a lot of people are asking a very valid question at the moment that is with the amount of work that has been put into encouraging domestic tourism in Australia, huge cuts yeah. on prices to, uh, to almost every location in the country, if we're talking about helping the Australian tourism industry and there has previously been such an emphasis upon getting domestic tourism numbers up and getting people out of their home states, yeah. do you think that the Kiwi travel bubble could actually have a detrimental effect on our domestic industry?
1: I don't no I don't really think so Max. Uh, uh, New Zealand in a sense has been treated by a lot of Australians as almost a domestic destination for a long time. Um, so there's a lot of there, there there are a lot there are a lot of synergies that work in. Firstly, you know, Australians are a fairly big source of tourism for New Zealand, but conversely New Zealand's a big source of tourism for Australia. A lot of those New Zealanders who come here are... T- uh, Probably more than many other nationalities tend tend to disperse throughout the country, which is actually quite a good thing. Um, it still means that everybody who uh, wants to go to Italy and uh, and South America and, and North America and Southeast Asia still can't do that. So I, I, I think I think. It's certainly in the interim period d- domestic tourism, which has been really pushed very hard by Tourism Australia, because they had nowhere else to push it. <laughs> the p- the problem is is that w- that a- the Australian government was basically essentially banning international visitation. So Tourism Australia's normal. Uh, normal role is to is to market Australia to the rest of the world, but we we haven't they haven't been able to do that for the last year, so they had to market it domestically. Now New Zealand, which is a, a tried and true market, um, it, it was prior to COVID our second biggest inbound market, uh, is is going to actually be a fill-up. So I, I actually see it as being a good thing. It could mean that some of our regional destinations uh, in Australia, which have been really doing brilliantly over the last six months or so, might be getting a slight decline in tourism, but it'll still be far, far greater than what they've experienced over the last 10 years.
0: Mm. And obviously, the tourism figures for New Zealand, I believe that, as you said, 40% of travellers, inbound travellers, and uh, I think financially it's around about 3 billion dollars 2.7 billion dollars to the economy correct
1: that's that's right i mean it's a, it's an important part of the economy and a, and a large part of new zealand's economy uh, i've been to new zealand 15 times so i i, I feel that i know the country <laughs> as well as many australians could hope to um, the whole the whole of new zealand is geared for tourism it it's all, it is always apart from lamb and agricultural products Uh, tourism is really where it's at for New Zealand Um, and the the whole country in a sense is, is, is the economies of many parts, particularly in the South Island, really are hinged on tourism. So and Aussie tourists, in particular, are ideal from a New Zealand point of view because they do go and see the country they will hire a car they 'll go travelling here there and everywhere in New Zealand, and that 's exactly the type of tourism that New Zealanders want so we 're probably an ideal market for them um, when they were getting a lot of tourism from from countries like China and Southeast Asia and the united states that 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 tourism tended to gravitate around certain gateway points, uh, and it didn't necessarily travel as widely within New Zealand as Australian tourists did. So um, the same for Kiwis coming here. A, a lot of them will come and visit friends and relatives because many people do have family connections between the two countries. But but New Zealanders uh, travel just like Australians do. They they want to see the wide open spaces, all the things that they can't get in New Zealand. It actually works out to be a very uh, serendipitous uh, market for both countries.
0: And do you see it potentially, because the last time we spoke, we were talking about uh, airlines and particularly the effect that COVID-19 would have upon airlines. And one thing that you mentioned, I've been listening back to some of the old recordings about this topic. One thing that you mentioned is that the doors were wide open for a complete rehashing of what we consider our domestic tourism industry to be, Um, and you thought that this would be an excellent time to spruik some of the places around Australia that could allow the industry to at least get itself back on its feet. Now that obviously we're being encouraged to go to New Zealand, do you think that there will be any change in the way that tourism in Australia uh, is targeted? Because we don't know when we'll be able to get tourism in from Uh, China... uh,
1: well, I think you'll find that, particularly from the point of Tourism Australia, uh, they're still going to be pr- promoting Australia very heavily to the domestic market. That's not going to stop. Um, they will obviously be doing their best to to uh, <laughs> to to reopen reopen the doors for for Kiwis to come here. But the you know the truth of the matter is. At at this point of time, we have a a bubble with one other country, so uh, it's so so the you know and when you look at the population differences, there are twenty five million Australians and less than about just under five million New Zealanders. So obviously, um, obviously the emphasis from a Tourism Australia perspective will still be to keep pushing the domestic travel because we, we are still going to be the dominant market. The, uh, domestic Australian tourism will be the dominant market for Australian travel. Um, obviously, New Zealanders will be very welcome, but uh, I, 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 until we start seeing a much wider uh, opening of international travel, uh, it's still going to be Australia first, and, and yes, New Zealanders are very welcome. <laughs>
0: And uh, do you think that this will have an effect on potentially travel bubbles opening with other countries? Because New Zealand and Australia, we share not only uh, geographical proximity, but culturally as well. Uh, We're very similar countries in many ways. Uh, Do you think that potentially there will be bubbles opening up with other countries, potentially in the region? The Pacific, uh, many countries in the Pacific handle COVID-19 relatively effectively.
1: Very Very effective indeed. I mean, if you look at countries like Vanuatu, which has had three cases, uh, Fiji, which has had less than 50 cases altogether, um, I I, I can certainly foresee an opening up of of, uh, tourism between Australia and quite a number of southwest Pacific countries. Fiji would probably be top of the list. uh, and, And the reason that I say that is that the majority of Australians who visit Fiji, unlike the way they travel in New Zealand, where they go here, there and everywhere, um, most Australians visiting Fiji tend to stay in resorts, so their exposure to the rest of the Fijian population is actually quite small. Um, It's a very safe form of tourism um, that, that they have. That that also applies to a lesser extent in Vanuatu. I think people do get a, around a bit more in Vanuatu than they do in uh, in Fiji. But the the other bubbles which are certainly near to the horizon would be Singapore uh, and uh, and and some other and Taiwan, interestingly enough, which has been incredibly successful um, in in managing COVID. So uh, look, I do think I I think as has always been the image and my understanding certainly in dealings with government is that they wanted to do New Zealand first because that was the most familiar territory I think for Australia to handle but I do think that we will see bubbles emerging in the southwest pacific now some of those southwest pacific countries I know Samoa for example and several others are very nervous about reopening travel because they're concerned that it could bring in a lot of COVID and a COVID which they've managed quite successfully to keep out of their countries. But Fiji is definitely very keen to uh, to, to start travel again.
0: Mm. And do you think that this could potentially have um, an effect on Australia's sort of diplomatic mission overseas to in many ways uh, repel a lot of soft power attempts by particularly China in in the Pacific? If we were able to open up travel bubbles with smaller Pacific nations, could that essentially... Kill two birds with one stone. One obviously opening up uh, a, another destination, some more revenue, but at the same time um, giving Pacific nations uh, a little bit of a leg up at a very difficult time, and then hopefully yeah. allowing that to develop into a stronger
1: bond. I, I look. I think at the at uh, I, I look. All of those things are very likely. Um, however, I think the first the first um, the greatest emphasis will still be on the health issues. So neither Australia or its uh, southwest Pacific neighbours are going to be just opening up um, willy-nilly to perhaps be a bulwark against China or anything like that until... Those countries are satisfied that that tourism is not going to have a negative impact on the the health of those countries. So they'll they'll take that fairly carefully. I, I mean, clearly, from an economic point of view, if you take Fiji as just one example... Uh, Fiji's economy is 40% based on tourism, so you can imagine that the last year has been catastrophic economically for for Fiji and, and naturally for economic. If it was only economy that the economy that was driving things, tourism, <laughs> the tourism between Australia and Fiji probably would have been, you know, happening six months ago. But there is this there is this this nervousness. Uh, I, I mean, I mentioned, for example, about Taiwan having a fantastic record and being a possible place for a bubble. But then again, if you want to upset the Chinese... Uh, encouraging lots of Australians to go to Taiwan probably will just add uh, add a little bit of extra oil to the uh, to the flames <laughs> that we already have in that relationship.
0: Exactly. If we were to start taking trips to Taiwan, <laughs> I can imagine that that would probably end quite poorly. Do you think that there were, that this could potentially be one of these new sort of weapons of soft power, that, particularly in the region that we sit in, that is already incredibly popular for tourism. Yeah. Uh, but also has this huge geopolitical significance at the moment?
1: Oh, look, tour- tourism is very much a weapon for, for soft power. Um, I, I, and I think anybody here... I I've used to do a lot of work on the, in the Middle East, of, to, related to the Middle East. Uh, I ran the Israel Government Tourist Office here in this country for, uh, for 12 years. And certainly, you know... Tourism was seen as a, a an icebreaker to 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 uh, enhance relations between different countries um, that ne- didn't necessarily like each other very much. So, um, so you know, tur- tourism is a is a great way of breaking down barriers and also breaking down stereotypes. So, you know, at its very very best, you know, tur- tourism is actually. A facilitator for improved relations between different countries in the world, but if you, <laughs> I guess, if you take it in an if, in it in its in a different way, uh, tourism can become weaponised. I suppose to a certain extent, if 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 a country, and this was something that a lot of Asian, Southeast Asian countries have experienced, when your tourism market is highly dependent on one country, and certainly China was a was a case in point here. Um, the withdrawal of chinese tourism for for some re, for a diplomatic reason or a political reason could actually be very dangerous and and in fact uh, you know there was an, a nature of the, the, some of the conflict that was occurring in recent years between Japan and China was actually tourism related uh, that you know the chinese uh, uh, Chinese government actually at one stage um, Reduce the uh, reduce the number of tourists who were able to uh, to travel to certain parts of Japan because they were upset with uh, with some of the Japanese government's policies. So, yeah, I mean, look, tur- tourism is one of many things uh, that can be used in a di- in a di- in a diplomatic used or misused in a diplomatic sense. <laughs>
0: Well, what may start from April 19th as a travel bubble between New Zealand and Australia could prove to be the blueprint for an unusual new type of soft power. As Dr Beerman makes clear, for countries in the Pacific who've kept COVID-19 at bay, the opportunity to open travel lanes again with Australia and New Zealand could shift the diplomatic balance. With tourism from China still at a halt and the Tokyo Olympics a solely domestic affair, cashed up and cabin feverish Aussies could be a very weighty currency in the region's COVID-19 recovery. Well, that's about all for this week's episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business is recorded in the studios of 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora people. A special thank you to our broadcast partners at the University of Technology's Business School and our national broadcaster, the Community Radio Network. You can find all our previous episodes online wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I've been your host, Max Tillman.